Today I'm joined by Emily Brown, a conservative seeking the CPC nomination for the federal riding of Burlington. Today I'm joined by Emily Brown, a conservative seeking the CPC nomination for the federal riding of Burlington. All the links to her work and pages will be in the description. All right, everyone, welcome back to episode 54 of Conservative Roundup. Today I'm joined by Emily Brown, the conservative seeking the CPC riding nomination for Burlington. Well, thank you so much for, for being here, Emily. It's awesome to have you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm very excited about this. Me too. Well, I want you to start by telling us about a little bit about yourself. Okay, my name is Emily Brown, and I'm currently a full-time professor at Sheridan College in the Faculty of Business, and I teach mathematics, so primarily business financial math and business calculus and algebra. And I really feel like I am at the beginning of students launching their careers in business and entrepreneurial ventures, so I'm very excited about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, prior to that, I actually was on uh, a project where I developed a post-admission math assessment for the college system. Wow. So I worked across uh, multiple stakeholders, so um, K-12 schools, post-secondary schools, superintendents, the ministries, and developed this post-admission math assessment in order to assess students' uh, math skills coming into their college programs because uh, about a third of students who go into college fail because of wow. poor foundational skills, keeping them from meeting their goals, right? <laughs> wow. So we need to be able to identify students that need extra help and uh, launch them in their careers. Wow. Well, what kind of, what made you, uh, what made you want to jump into the ring and put your name for it as the, as the CPCU nomination? Well, uh, in fact, uh, I had never planned to be in politics. However, everything I've done in my life seems to have drawn me to this place uh, where I really am a very good candidate for this uh, riding and for this role and certainly for the federal conservatives. I've been a lifelong conservative, my family before me. I have been a sport shooter competitively for about 48 years, uh, started at the age of 12. And it didn't take me long to understand that what happened in the federal government impacted my ability to participate in my sport. So from a very early uh, age in my teens, like you, I volunteered for campaigns. I volunteered at elections, um, you know, up until the three most recent elections here in Burlington. So I definitely have been a lifelong conservative. Um, as far as background before I was in, uh, in the education and college system, I was um, a researcher in um, the oil and gas sector. So I worked in the Netherlands and I worked at the International Research Centre and I lived uh, a number of years in Alberta. So I have a, a real anchor in the uh, energy wow. sector and a belief that the Oil sands are clear energy, cleaner energy than uh, the liberals would have us believe. <laughs> definitely, uh, definitely. So, I mean, there's a cabinet right now that you're riding. There's a cabinet minister, Karina Gold. I mean, we all know that she's anti-pipeline as well. She takes likes to take yes. the orders of Justin yeah, she Trudeau. She took great pride in suggesting that we should landlock Alberta and shut down the tar sands. Wow. Uh, which is certainly um, an uneducated position on mm. the uh, the sector. Definitely. I think a lot of people putting in their, their names for his nominations now, their communities are getting really impacted by, by the current Trudeau government. What are some, uh, some issues or impacts that the Trudeau government have had on, on Burlington? Well, I think primarily, you know, we're seeing um, a rise in prices. Of course, we have um, a high number of seniors in our community. 
So we have about 180,000 people. We are a lakefront community. We're, we're sitting uh, nestled in the beautiful uh, shores of Lake Ontario. And uh, there's a lot of people who retire here or stay here. And um, certainly, um, you know, pension and old age security and uh, the lack of increases thereof with increasing costs have impacted people. Uh, we've seen a huge rise in housing prices. So um, the house that I'm in now um, has actually tripled in value in about oh. eight years. Uh, and that's, you know, really horrific for young families who want to either move to Burlington or people who want to stay in, in the place where they were born and raised. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's becoming quite a challenge. Uh, obviously, with the pandemic, we're seeing industries affected. We're seeing small business and restaurants, tourism, all of those things impacted. And, you know, pre-pandemic, we still had issues with complicated tax structures for businesses, um, licensing uh, for new businesses. So those are ongoing challenges. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Is, is, I mean, for example, for what you were talking about with the, the housing, I mean, here in Durham, on a house brand new, one between 800 and 1.5. I mean, in Toronto, that gets you like, like one of those little shacks that go for like 1 million as well. Yeah, we are seeing a lot of people, especially with people working from home, where they were able to, you know, live in a small accommodation in Toronto, now they, they realize they're spending more time at home and, and they may well be doing that into the future. So they're moving out into communities like Burlington and we need to be ready to support those. Definitely. I mean, go, looking at your, in the, your constituents in, in Burlington, I mean, how, what are some main concerns that, that they have at the, at the current moment? Uh, main concerns in Burlington? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have a beautiful waterfront that we're trying to protect and uh, make accessible for everyone or keep accessible for everyone. We have um, a lot of people coming into the community and we do have about 70% of, of people living in Burlington who commute using vehicles or they did before the pandemic and will likely return to that. So we have some infrastructure issues. Um, so we're trying to, you know, make better uh, commuter uh, routes, commuter transport, but we also have to convince uh, commuters that taking the car everywhere isn't probably the best solution. Yeah. Um, we also have uh, huge issues with crime. Uh, we mm -hmm. sit on um, the major four series highways, easy access, uh, as well as the QEW. We are um, in the middle of Niagara through the border up to Toronto and Brampton and the airport. So we are seeing a huge increase in crimes uh, so gun smuggling, drugs, gangs, um, violent robberies, and also something that is huge now uh, is human trafficking. And we're seeing an, a steady increase. In fact, in, in uh, 2020, we have had an increase reported of 44% wow. in human trafficking. That is unfathomable when you consider mm -hmm. that, you know, largely people have been locked down due to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So this is something that Burlington needs to really address and we need to be working with, um, you know, the borders, with our Halton Police Service, with the RCMP, the OPP, uh, across law enforcement to address this. Mm -hmm. Definitely as well. I mean, crime is significantly gone up. I mean, look, looking at the, the trio gun grabs, I mean, in my opinion, I mean, looking at like the last, such as the, the Nova Scotia tragedy, I mean, he, he did like to, to seem to take advantage of, of people's guns with, with that sad incident i mean then he, he 
he went went after the guns of, of law-abiding gun owners and not actually the the, the crimes and the gangs in uh, in Toronto as well as the other major cities across Canada. It's so hard, disheartening to see. I mean, because I mean, we've had Doug Ford come in. I think it was his first or second year. He mean he increased funding the police and a lot of the crime went down in in Toronto as well as the supporting areas of the GTA. I mean, they went down significantly. I mean, crime almost dropped to uh, I think it was about ten percent, I believe. I mean, uh, definitely as well as human trafficking is a huge, huge issue as well that a lot of, I mean, right now through COVID, I mean, a lot of people are, are by themselves. They don't have anyone accompanying them anymore. And that's a serious system. And here is gas stations, for example, as well, is that you go and fill your car up. So, and then, for example, a van comes around the corner and they, they, they nab you as well. I mean, that's a huge, huge uh-huh. issue. It's so disheartening too. I mean, that's, that's a person's life right there. Yeah, people have to be uh, aware of the signs of human trafficking and uh, there are a lot of in-services provided to police uh, where you recognize the signs of grooming, which is what the terminology that they use for uh, bringing people into the human trafficking uh, ring, uh, whether it's, um, you know, the pimp, the person who sells or the victim uh, survivor of, of human trafficking. So that's something that we really need to be aware of. And, and I think, you know, Burlington is, um, you know, waking up to being uh, a place where we need to really start addressing these crimes. With respect to the gun ban and gun legislation, of course, that's of, of huge interest to me. I've been, as I say, a sports shooter for uh, 48 years and done so safely and legally and have, have been through every evolution of gun licensing and legislation since that time. Um, And so what the uh, Trudeau government has done is they broach everything with this public safety mantra and, um, you know, we're we're taking uh, assault, military assault rifles off the streets and um, really it's uh, a series of lies that they're telling the Canadian public uh, and largely those who are unaware of the current legislation and also the current, um, you know, firearms that are available. So, for example, um, when they refer to military style, uh, they are literally referring to um, hunting or sport shooting firearms that, you know, have some, uh, you know, additional features on them that make them look different from maybe traditional wood and metal firearms. But their action, their function is no different than a a simple target rifle or or a hunting rifle. Um, so there were two bills that I call partner bills that the uh, Liberals um, tabled some about two years ago now, Bill C-71 and C-75. And I call them partner bills because C-71 literally wanted to add another layer um, of, of legislation to lawful firearm owners um, with respect to actually laws that kind of already exist that aren't being enforced to the full extent of the law while C-75 um, reduced or lightened um, legislation and uh, sentencing for uh, firearm-related crimes. Most recently, in the last uh, year, uh, we had two other what I call partner bills, C-21 and C-22. C-21 has been um, uh, discussed in the House in this past week or so, and uh, that basically actually went to attacking airsoft and Mm -hmm. paintball guns Uh, because they, you know, these guns may look like firearms that this Liberal government doesn't think people own. And so they've certainly raised the attention of young people, people Mm -hmm. who enjoy those sports safely, again, 
and legally. Um, and the other bill, C-22, has uh, repealed mandatory minimum sentences for um, at least 14 offenses within the criminal code, including firearms offenses, trafficking, oh. smuggling, using a firearm in, the pro in, the, um, in a crime, and so on. So on the one hand, the, the government is saying, well, we're going to uh, attack the most law-abiding Canadians uh, in the country, the, most, uh, the least likely to commit any crime. And on the other hand, we're going to um, soften uh, sentences for, for criminals. It just makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And you can certainly see why um, crime is increasing. We look at Toronto, we look at Vancouver, where there are literally gang wars going on. And we're not addressing um, the, the base reason for why someone would pick up a firearm in the commission of a crime or join a gang. We're just not addressing it. Mm -hmm, definitely, as well as airsoft. I mean, a lot of young people. I mean, they do go, go. They go out and do that for fun. I mean, for kids in the summer, I mean, we're still locked down. Kids in the summer, last summer, they had nothing to do. They went out. It can be done safely. I mean, that's what they the point of the went for. It can be done safely. So they went out and did. They did. They had airsoft. It's fun. It's a fun activity. It's essentially it's almost like a toy. I mean, it's nothing compared to like an actual rifle or or, or an AR. I mean, it it just bewilders me too because I mean that it can't even fatally hurt someone. I mean, it, it's essentially harmless to to someone if you in the right way, right? I mean, it, it's it just bewilders me. What's interesting about uh, shooting disciplines, and there are many, you know, handgun, rifle. Um, clay target shooting, which is what I'm primarily involved with. Um, so a study came out uh, by Canadian uh, sports uh, researchers, and they looked at women and girls in sport. Uh, being in a sport is really important to people's social, physical, mental health. And what this study showed was that 70% of women or girls uh, are no longer participating in sport by the time they reach their wow. late teens. And certainly, uh, once they're into their 20s and 30s, it, that number grows. And so, with um, with sports shooting, you know, you don't need to be, um, you know, you don't need to be sort of, uh, you know, hyper athletic. It's really a mental game. There is a physical aspect to it, of course. But as I said, I've been shooting for 48 years, so it's a sport that you can participate in for your entire life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it builds uh, confidence, uh, you know, competition, resilience, patience. So, you know, there are all those things that we're hoping to instill in young people going forward, you know, can be developed through sport shooting. And I think, you know, really the, uh, the government's missing the mark on this. Um, with respect to a business aspect, um, you know, the firearms, uh, uh, sporting arms and ammunition industries contribute $8 billion wow. to the GDP in Canada. Um, and wow. we have about 2.3 million licensed firearm owners. Uh, most of these um, small businesses, there's 4,500 across the country, and largely they're family businesses in small communities. So they're employing a number of people in those small communities about 40,000 across Canada. And so the industry itself is not insignificant. Wow. Uh, it's so far, I mean, for Cal California, for example, I mean, the, the governor says that they, they want safer prisons. I mean, kind of at the start of COVID as well, is that they started releasing inmates, like da very dangerous inmates as well, releasing from the prisons because they don't want, want COVID. I mean, to me, that makes absolutely no sense as well. I mean, a lot of people, even at the start of the vaccine rollout as well, I mean, a lot of majority of the vaccines went to, to inmates as well in the prisons 
who didn't even have COVID uh, to start with in, in prisons, for example. I mean, some did have COVID, very serious cases, but a lot of them didn't. And a lot of the inmates didn't even test positive. I mean, uh-huh. it, it, as well, I mean, that's and that's coming on back onto the streets. All that crime is coming back onto you in, in my streets. It, 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 it's so frightening because a lot of people are actually they're out socializing I mean, they they can't even uh they can't even go out to use a park i mean they're going out for walks every day and then they in gta they go and get jumped i mean i mean it, it, it it's it's so much i mean yeah, it's dreadful mm-hmm. you know one of the things that's missing you know uh, is the economic factor so um last may may 2020 the liberal government announced through an order in council the ban of about 1500 models of firearms which no. You know, they're not the ones used in commission of crime. And they've offered a buyback, which was not in the most recent budget that came down. So we really are confused about what's happening. But Mm -hmm. the shameful thing is it's not going to do anything for public safety. And that money really could go to um, better social programs within at-risk communities. Um, There are organizations like Communities for Zero Violence, One by One Movement, that are really working within the community to help individuals choose a different life, to give them hope, to give them education, um, you know, to give them uh, a place of belonging, family support. So, you know, that money could be better spent on those things rather than, you know, going after sports shooters and duck hunters who aren't involved in these things, mm-hmm. right? So. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the people. I mean, yeah, cause they, yeah, where there's the quote unquote, we're gonna buy back you, your guns. I mean, that right there to me sounds a little fishy because I, not a lot of governments have ever done that before. And and actually, that's a lot of, of money that you're gonna put forward right there. I mean, that I mean, as you said, it wasn't even tabled in the budget, right? No, and the fact is, you know, uh, the buyback is meant to be uh, two years after the order in council was announced last May. So we're one year into this uh, buyback initiative. But, uh, you know, if these guns are so dangerous, as uh, Bill Blair and Justin Trudeau would suggest, then why would you trust us to keep them in our safes mm-hmm. and trust yeah. us not to use them? And the reason for that is because we are lawful Canadians. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the, the, issue, the bigger issue here, Aiden, though, is that it's not just about the guns, right? This is a this is private property, mm-hmm. legally purchased, legally used by Canadians. And so, you know, one has to wonder um, what could be next. You know, what is it that you own or your parents own or anyone else in Canada owns that the government could decide they don't want you to own anymore? And so it really is about private property, private ownership, and that's something that the conservative platform really stands solid on is mm-hmm. firstly um, private ownership of firearms, but also protection of private property. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a, an important issue and it's bigger than just, uh, you know, what's happening with firearms. Definitely. I mean, I kind of in Canada here, I, I, I kind of wish that we had like a, a Second Amendment type uh, <laughs> type mm-hmm. in the Constitution. I mean, that right there in the States as well. I mean, that's. Uh, Texas, for example, I mean, a lot of like the very rural, rural uh, states do have a lot of uh, a lot of good gun laws. I mean, they can be done safely. I mean, it's it's proven. I mean, and then, and then it's it's always with the liberals. We, we come back to well, there, well, there's so much gun violence and so many people get killed. I mean, and then we, and then you, someone goes and asks, well, where's the data? I mean, they, they can't even provide the data for that as well. Yeah, there there were a lot of uh, of lies told about that and a lot of backpedaling. For example, 
um, you know, the suggestion that at least half of guns used in crime were legally, domestically, or were domestically sourced, which has come out certainly as a lie. And, um, you know, chiefs of police and so on have, um, have revoked that. And the evidence suggests, the evidence states that about 70% are smuggled from across the border. And that continues to happen even with, uh, with the pandemic closures. A recent documentary just came out called Veracity, The Gun Chase, and it was by um, a journalist from uh, City News. And uh, this was a year-long investigation where, you know, uh, Christina's talked to gun smugglers, talked to gang members, talked to victims of crime, and all of them are saying a gun ban is not effective, and, uh, and this is where the, the guns are coming from. We need more data collection and we need more communication across law enforcement agencies. There is no national database to record where um, guns used in the commission of crime were sourced. Uh, that would certainly help to mm -hmm. uh, to inform the situation. Definitely. So I mean, like you're like you're going for example, like Shannon Stubbs goes into the public safety committee with Bill Burr. I mean, she gets more uh, she gets more answers from actual people that come on as. Uh, Oh, what do you call them? Oh my gosh! Uh, Expert witnesses. Yes, or... witnesses. Yeah. That never happens. I mean, she gets more she gets more answers for witnesses than she actually does the Bill Blair. Yes, we have some brilliant MPs who really know the truth. We have Glenn Motts, Bob Zimmer, Blaine Culkin, Shannon Stubbs, Michelle Rempel before mm -hmm. was the opposition leader for public safety. And, uh, you know, the evidence is there. Unfortunately, the Liberal government continues to lie to Canadians and uh, create a sense of fear that they shouldn't have, certainly about, uh, you know, licensed uh, firearm owners. Uh, and they should be demanding better. I mean, we all deserve to be safe in our communities, and currently we're not. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of people don't realize, you know, um, any school in Toronto that was built over 50 or 60 years ago, they all basically have rifle ranges in their in their basements. and. You know, the Manulife Center in Montreal has had bowling alleys and rifle ranges in wow. them. Uh, Hart House at the University of Toronto had a rifle range. Uh, Union Station in Toronto has a rifle <laughs> range. Uh, and that one, I believe, is still active for, uh, for local Toronto police uh, wow. training. So, you know, that has never been the problem. You know, mm -hmm. guns in, in, the, in the hands of licensed owners or, or safe owners has never been the problem. So what is the problem? Let's talk about that and let's mm -hmm. solve those problems within the community, mm -hmm. you know, giving people uh, opportunity and hope within the communities, right? Definitely. So, I mean, right there, yeah, yeah definitely that leads right back to the, the gangs and, and the huge and, and the, the syndicates as well. I mean, right through the roof there, I mean, a lot of uh, conservative provincial governments have got a lot of they've they've definitely pushed back against uh, gangs and, and syndicates, and it, it it really goes to show how conservative policies actually all conservatives do get the job done, but we, it shows how good their policies work. I mean, I mean we have all these left wing radicalists that want to defund the police, and even I mean look at, for the states for example with uh, with Portland and uh, Minneapolis, I mean they defund their police and crime rates significantly jumped up 400% and now they're adding their funds back to the police. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's so difficult and that certainly has been uh, you know a, a cause of concern within uh, within Canada and the US. I mean, we mm -hmm. Canada and the US are very different. They're very different with respect to their firearm laws and we can't mm -hmm. conflate the two. But with respect to defunding the police, of course, we get calls for that here. We get people protesting, but 
you know, what I would suggest is that we need a better relationship with the police. Mm -hmm. Everyone does. And I think that, um, you know, there was a time when that was happening uh, in Toronto. Uh, but it's, you know, it's certainly not happening now. You know, we're, we, the pandemic has, uh, has a, impacted, uh, you know, communities differently. Um, you know, jobs, job loss, employment, and um, there is something called the, the Gini coefficient. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's, it's an economic indicator that suggests that um, as the increase in, um, in um, ec ec economy of groups of people, sort of the haves and have-nots, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, the greater the increase, the more likelihood to see a corresponding increase in violence. And I would suggest that right now with the pandemic, uh, impacting those of, of lower means or in at-risk communities where they've been losing their jobs with greater um, you know greater regularity that we're going to see an increase because we're not supporting um, you know groups that we should be yeah definitely so I mean kind of kind of going back to, to human trafficking again I mean uh, I mean there's barely any awareness for I mean the conservatives have called for a lot provincially and federally have called for a lot more funding towards awareness and support programs I mean we I mean we can't even get those I mean like from the federal government yes uh, I was on a town hall on Saturday with Marilyn Gladue MP for Sarnia Lambton and uh, and it was about human trafficking um, because of her being in a border town we you know Obviously, that's a huge concern there. But uh, as I said, uh, human trafficking uh, was shown to increase 44% just in the mm -hmm. last year. And we do need to have more funding. We need to have more education for, um, for the police services in order to identify it. And, uh, and the population, you know, we all need to be our eyes and ears. We need to protect our young people. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need to be, um, you know, looking out for those signs and being able to report those signs mm -hmm. What's happening, I, I feel, is that, um, you know, we, again, we are on this, um, you know, this corridor uh, between the border and we're seeing um, young people coming across the border. We're seeing people come from other provinces and we're seeing people, even um, young people on airplanes going across and being part of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. Here in, in Burlington, uh, I'm going to say two years ago, there was a, a local restaurateur who was arrested for mm -hmm. being part of a human trafficking ring for some wow. 15, 15 years. Wow. Um, so, you know, how is that possible that it could literally happen underneath our very noses? Wow. And as much as this government suggests that it's, you know, all about uh, women and feminist government, um, you know, it is largely women and girls and, in fact, uh, Indigenous young women mm -hmm. uh, who, uh, you know, find themselves uh, in a human trafficking situation and unable to get out. And we need to have more resources, we need to have more education, and we certainly need to be addressing it in ways that we aren't now. Definitely as well. I mean, majority, a lot of a lot of, of young women and as well as minors are while they're being sexually exploited, sexually abused, and sexually as you as you said, uh, whistleblowing, I believe it was called. Is that or catcalled? I mean, kind of for the respects of the federal government. I mean, how do you think that we should kind of proceed on human trafficking awareness throughout uh, the GTA as well as Canada? this town hall you know is a bit of a discussion where you know I mean it's a supply chain so 
you know, we really need to address it at both ends. We need to, um, you know, protect our young people from from being groomed into these uh, these human trafficking organizations. But we also need to look at the other end. Who is who is actually buying these young people? Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to address that as well. So how do we, you know, how do we do that? How do we make people aware? Uh, there are some shocking statistics that um, uh, the vast majority of, of buyers, if you will, are, um, you know, married, have children, grandchildren, uh, higher than normal incomes, and generally are white Caucasian men. So, I, you know, that that fact needs to be highlighted that, mm-hmm. you know, we're not, that's where the buyers are, and we need to stop that in order mm-hmm. to stop the supply chain. Definitely as well. And yet, Shocking, that, right? Yeah, that, that is, yeah, actually, there's a really good example right there. And, uh, I, mean, I mean, here in Beauville, I mean, a couple months ago, we, there's a huge ring just completely exploding. I mean, there's, there's a gas station, there's a restaurant, a couple houses, almost a whole subdivision. Uh, it, it, it just disgusts me how we get how the federal government just lets things go that far as well and i mean that's in major cities i mean that's in in minority communities that's in major cities across the gta as well as canada i mean it's such a huge widespread i mean this is across the world as well i mean as well to the states i mean there's there's those loopholes that people can go in and out i mean kind of i mean that's kind of the thing as well between mexico and uh, the united states that's Absolutely. a huge issue yeah. down there as well. one, of, one of the things now of course is that uh you know we're we're at home from the pandemic we're so young people can be on their cell phones they're talking to people that parents may not know mm-hmm. um you know grooming can occur in person or grooming can occur online and you know they could be uh, meeting people online and uh, not really realizing uh, the path that they're being taken on um you know young girls they go into these situations uh, believing that it's a romance and and uh, bef- before uh, they don't realize until they're already well embedded and can't get out of this human trafficking situation. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, it's a dangerous game. Uh, these um, the pimps and so on, they make a lot of money. So you can imagine that when you try to impact that income, there mm-hmm. can be a lot of pushback and violence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, these young girls need to be approached uh delicately by law enforcement and and social workers and so on that actually know how to extract them from the trauma that they're experiencing Mm -hmm. and understand that it's not simply a one-way extraction that they're you know uh, they need to be supported and and if you will deprogrammed from uh, from the situation that they've been uh, involved in definitely I I definitely agree with you there I mean Kind of now jumping and get back into elections now. I mean, yes. kind of going into the uh, the next election. What are some some key elements that do you think that we should definitely hold on to to win back the GT as well as, as Burlington turn it blue again? Well, I think that uh, the big issue, of course, is small and medium businesses and getting people uh, back to work, uh, back to a stable income, and back to spending. We need to uh, you know start turning that economic engine. So that's something that the Conservatives do really well. Um, you know, the leader, Aaron O'Toole, hasn't jumped in and said, oh, we're going to solve this economic problem in a year because he's smart. And he knows that the situation with the deficit 
uh, mounting, uh, sorry, the debt mounting and the deficit year over year is something that we're not going to solve overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's the biggest thing is really investing. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of investment for new businesses in the budget that the Liberals brought down. It was mm-hmm. sort of support and, and initiatives for existing businesses. But, you know, we can't, uh, we can't grow the economy simply on existing businesses. We have to get uh, support for new businesses mm-hmm. as well. So that's one of the big things. Um, I think we need to also be looking at addressing the skills gap. Uh, we do have a lot of uh, a lot of jobs that can't be filled. Um, we've got people looking for skilled labor that simply aren't uh, aren't available or aren't applying. So we need to look at uh, you know post secondary education. What what kinds of careers do we have now and going into the future, and how can we develop the skills in in young people or through second careers that we can, uh, you know, start employing Canadians in secure, you know, well-paying jobs. Mm-hmm. Definitely as well. And to your point as well as economic wise, I mean, a lot of when we, when we went through 08 and 09, I, I obviously weren't, wasn't really involved that much. I wouldn't really know what, what was going on, but a, a lot of Canadians were hurting it. And Stephen Harper took grasp of, of Canada's leadership and led us through 08 and, and 09. And a lot of people saw that and, and, and in 2011 voted a majority government and because of that and because of his economic uh, policies. Yes, well, Stephen Harper was a graduate economist, so <laughs> he did certainly at least have theoretical experience. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he led this country well for 11 years, just, you know, really he did. And, uh, you know, at the end of his term, uh, left a healthy government behind, which, uh, as you know, in the, la- in the, the years since has, uh, has certainly been uh, decimated. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we need to return to some uh, fiscal conservative policies. That doesn't mean, uh, you know, axing programs and so on. That's not yeah. what conservatives are about. You know, we have children, we have grandchildren, we have, you know, senior parents, and we know those systems that need support from the federal government. Um, but we do also realize that, you know, overspending where it's not necessary and inefficiencies uh, are not a way to run the country. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have a prime minister that said the budget will balance itself. Well, you know, that was ridiculous then. And it's certainly uh, obviously more ridiculous now when we yeah. see that there's no plan for this for government sure. to have a, bu- a balanced budget. Um, I teach compound interest and uh, business financial math. And my students are shocked, you know, at the when they they actually understand the implication of compound interest mm-hmm. and so we're looking at a low interest rate right now but the implications of, uh, of any rise in interest rate will not only impact our, our national debt load and, and, and the repayment plan but it's going to impact Canadians as well right and mm-hmm. uh, you know people who have, have high mortgages people who have taken out debt to survive this pandemic uh, so we you know we need to, to tread carefully and I think Aaron O'Toole's got that uh, that well in hand definitely my next question for you is going into this next question is the, as well as going into the cpc nomination what type of you conservative would you describe yourself as and why well i'm a i'm a quite uh, traditional uh i'm a fiscal conservative i have no debt i believe that spending and, and within my means but uh you know i'm less a, a social conservative i you know i i believe in uh in the rights of, of everyone in canada uh, I have studied, traveled, and worked abroad uh, extensively. I've worked in the Netherlands, studied in Poland, studied in Japan, and traveled a lot. 
and I, I bring a lot of perspective to the table that's an international business and, uh, and, and cross-cultural uh, perspective. So, you know, I think that that's something that will be important in this, in this riding is just to see, you know, what the potential of Burlington is, um, you know, from that, uh, that wide view. Going into the, the nom- this nomination as well, who are some, some key political inspirations or figures that, that kind of got you motivated to, to jump in? Well, um, that's an interesting question. I, I do watch, uh, you know, watch the government, watch the House and see what's going on. But I, I have to say some of my, uh, you know, mentors were, uh, or not mentors, I guess, sort of the heroes or, you know, historical leaders would be, you know, Margaret Thatcher and Winston <laughs> yeah. Churchill. They governed through some darn tough times mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, didn't waver, right? They had an idea, they they built their country up and, you know, it, it's tough times here and we're going to need, um, you know, tough, tough but uh, fair leadership going forward. We've, you know, we, we, we have a record of putting Canada back on track uh, economically, socially and so on and I know that the Conservatives certainly can do it again and um so i'm certainly up to the challenge for that and ready to go well my 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 last question is for you why should people vote for you for your for your nomination why should they elect emily brown as the mp for burlington that's a really good question um so i am the best candidate i'm in a place where i have a lot of energy for this i am dedicated to this role I have a broad experience, oil and gas sector, across uh, cultures, uh, international business experience. I have very high expectations and very high standards. Uh, I speak three languages, um, oh. which will certainly help. Uh, je parle français, je peux parler français à, à la house. So I think that, uh, you know, that puts me in good stead. I am... Uh, I said I'm 60 years old. This is the last best thing I can do for my country, and I'm ready to serve not only Burlington but the country itself. So I'm wow. uh, that's awesome. excited about that. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for being here today. I, I enjoyed our time, and I, and I look forward to the campaign trail, and I hope that we can do this again. Thanks, Aiden. I'll keep you posted. Thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> I really appreciate Thanks. it. And that was Emily Brown, a conservative seeking the CPC nomination for the federal riding of Burlington. Make sure to check out Emily's page at emilybrown.ca and make sure to get out and vote for her on June 28th to elect her as the conservative candidate for the riding of Burlington.